0: As expected, the final weekend of Summer Test delivered drama that befitted the entire summer series. They leave us with a tonne of talking points, and for episode 23 of the Rugby Paper Podcast, I'm rejoined by Chris and Brendan, as well as former England fullback, former professional cricketer, and renowned rugby journalist Alistair Hignall. Chris and Brendan back again, and we're joined by former England fullback, former professional cricketer, and rugby journalist Alistair Hignall. How are you doing, Alistair? Very well, thanks. Good to be with you. So, Tell us what are you doing nowadays? You obviously you finished with Five Live a little while ago now. Good time ago now, yes. Yeah. So what are you doing now?
1: Well, I'm not technically doing any work, although I'm doing a lot of uh, a lot of spade work for a, a charity called the Sporting Memories Foundation, which basically tries to use the power of sport to help individuals suffering from dementia, isolation, or depression. So it's sort of a social inclusion thing. We try and use the way sport, the way music has been used for, for sufferers with dementia and Alzheimer, to promote conversations, to promote chat, to promote memories, and therefore stimulate the neural processes in the brain. But it also works out as being a great opportunity to get together and chat about sport, which uh, our
0: Brighton chapter seems to do most of the time. Particularly pertinent now, with obviously the news that's come out about Ryan Jones this week. So, is the charity involved around that sort of story?
1: Well, I think the the understanding of the charity is that we can't do anything about the past. We can't do anything about the, the suffering that guys like Ryan Jones and Tomo, Steve Thompson have suffered as a result of. But we can do something about the present, about helping them to keep them, the neural processes going. We can do something about the future in promising a sort of safe space where people can express their anxieties and their troubles and, and be allowed to be themselves. Because, you know, I, I know from experience, my dad had dementia. And once you start thinking you can't remember something, you tend to go into a, a cell and don't and, and don't take part in conversations, and therefore that's a, a self-defeating circle, and you end up not really being able to converse at all. So our aim is to use the sport and the memories and the ancient muscle memories about sport to connect people with their past and to keep them. Talking and therefore confident in themselves, and therefore able to do th- do more things. That's that's the aim.
0: And for those who don't know too much about dementia, myself included, it is those sorts of conversations and reminders that really help to mitigate its impact.
1: Yes, it is because you know one of the the bits that you lose is is your memory or your or your ability to retrieve facts from this wonderful computer we have in our heads called a brain. And once you you struggle with that, you, another part of your brain says, "Oh, you can't do it." And therefore, it's a a question of saying, yes, you can. There are bits of incredible pathways, like, I don't know if you saw um, a piece about a music teacher in Sussex who has Alzheimer's, but he managed to compose a piece of music. And it's incredible that his memory, his brain memory, lasted longer in certain areas, uh, in his music area. And it's certainly been demonstrated and being more and more demonstrated that sport has the same effect. It's something that's been a huge part of people's life either as players or as supporters, and it's something they remember because it's quite often associated with good memories and, and other things that stretch on from there. So the, the use of sport to keep people uh, sociable, talking, remembering, uh, and part of society is, is a, a, we hope, what well, we think is a very vital thing to do.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And forgive me, perhaps you mentioned, but is this more rugby-centric or is this all sport?
1: Absolutely not. No, it's all sports. The Sporting Memories Foundation. In fact, the um, the Professional Footballers' Association have joined, and they've created a safe space for their former professional footballers who maybe have headed the ball too much or whatever. Yeah, they have their own meeting group. So it's not a question of you know being besieged by autograph hunters or the equivalent of. So the the professional cricketers are talking to us as well, uh, and the RPA have started to do their own thing separately about trying to keep that those links going with former players people who'd feel less confident can find a space where they can talk uh, and they can be recognized as, as just being you know who they were who they are so it's it's all sports it's all people it's sociable as well as I mean there are 130 odd groups around the country and growing it's a sociable thing
2: there's a there's Obviously, a very in right. history, Alistair isn't there of um... It's particularly in cricket, with which you were, you know, you were in, you, you were in your living back in the day. There's a long history of, of depression and worse yeah. with cricket.
1: Uh, yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, r- rather a, a remarkable book. David Fo- Foot didn't he wrote a wonderful book about, well, but a sad subject: the, the suicides of cricketers. And of course, David Bearsto, Johnny's dad, was one of them. Uh, yes, yeah. cricket is it's a it's a real mental challenge and. You know if it goes right or wrong people get a very very intensely motivated and changed by it so it's it's a as i say the professional cricket association has is looking into the mind and the problems of the you know of brain and confidence and all that sort of thing and they've
3: been very supportive to us as well I, I went along to a meeting of 20 years ago now up in leeds of a sort of i think it was just a sort of start-up thing along these lines ali and it was actually remarkable that they, they got a load of old programs out, 1960s, 70s programs yeah. and team photos, and it just lights the place up. Everybody sparks up. It just activates that part of the brain, which has, has gone to sleep, I suppose. Yeah, and, and fa- fine
1: memories, fond memories. I mean, we were yeah. in one of our sessions who, who remembered bowling to Don Bradman in 1948, and he's 85 or so. He's lying prone in a nursing home. Can't walk, can't do very much else, but he remembers with absolute clarity bowling as a kid in the nets to Don Bradman at Eastbourne, and it's just, it was just turned out to be a wonderful, wonderful story. And those are the yeah. sort of things that that get sparked off, and then they lead to other things. Uh, and that's the that's the great thing about the conversational aspect of sporting memories.
2: There, there are a lot of bowlers out there, Higgy, with less than fond memories of bowling to Don Bradman.
1: <laughs> uh, <we>, uh... <laughs> Yes, but the the longer time goes on, you say, well, I bowled to it. What were the
0: figures? (laughs) (laughs) No, that really is a remarkable project. And you said it's less about changing the past, but more living in the present. So I suppose you use the past to resuscitate a certain sense of living in the present.
1: Um, We've left that to the scientists. I mean, the the scientists are doing some great work. And, you know, there was that scary film about American footballers and chronic trauma. Uh, encephalitis or whatever it was and that's going to be discovered amongst rugby players in fact I think the Ryan Jones story suggested that he had had got it those are things we can't do anything about uh, the scientists may find a cure they may find a way of ameliorating things but in living in the present when you've got dementia it can be a very scary past because you suddenly forget yeah what's the name of that thing and and you suddenly forget where you are or that sort of thing so to, to have the confidence to to think you can communicate is, is very, very important. And that's what we're dealing with, that those who've got dementia in the present and those who fear they might get it in the future. We've got most of our group don't have dementia at the moment, uh, but we're, we're all a bit scared we might have. We might get yeah. it. Yeah. So we use the memory sharing and the communication and the friendship to hopefully mitigate against it in the future
0: and on the football front and i promise we will talk about the summer test but this is a fascinating topic on the football front it was introduced this week there's a law being trialed you're not allowed to head the ball yeah the age of 12 i'm guessing that's outside of your remit and you're not necessarily involved in the implementation of a law like that but is that the sort of thing you want to see introduced in sport in general
1: well it's it's a a hot potato of a question because you look at all the, the brutal collisions in rugby and We're going to get on, presumably, to talk about that. Yeah, I mean, the the head contact, rugby is struggling with the laws, how to actually make things safe, but also retain the the qualities of the game. Those sorts of things really are, one would say, from, from the Sporting Memories Foundation point of view, we can't legislate about the game, but we can help people who've suffered the effects of it. So it's fascinating to see where rugby's going, where all contact sports are going, and I hope that the lawmakers have the clarity and the vision to understand how to preserve the essence of the game as well as to make sure that it's as safe as possible.
0: Well, I suppose this is a nice feeder then, I'm going to invert the structure of the episode a little bit, but I did want to talk about the physical element of the summer test because cards, head-on-head contact, concussions, they have played really quite a significant role, not just in the results, but obviously in the, the fallout of, of the tests. It seemed concerningly high. And I was just like, I said last week, there were five concussions in the first two Australia-England tests. Red cards in the second Ireland-New Zealand test. We then had Andrew Porter's challenge on Brady Retallick. There was a lot of it. Do you think this is something that is on the rise, those sort of head-on-head collisions? Or do you just think because there's more scrutiny on it now, we're noticing it more?
1: Absolutely more scrutiny. That's without a doubt. And because of the scrutiny, then it's a sort of circle that becomes the, 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 and the fact that we have t- TMOs and we have replays of every incident. Uh, in the past, maybe there was a lot of unsuspected concussions. There's an, an awful lot of head on head collisions that probably, possibly went unnoticed. They're being absolutely put under the search right now. So we are seeing more and more of them. And it does appear that when you've got great big, huge men jousting in close quarters, unless they can bend their huge frame down, there are, there's bound to be some head on head collisions. I don't know what the answer to that is. Somebody suggested put everybody in, in scrum helmets. But the experience of American football is that, you know, people use the helmets as weapons
3: then. So it's it, And also know. it doesn't stop the concussion Higgy. It doesn't stop no. the brain accelerating and deaccelerating within yeah. that within that head guard. So it you know, it might stop you getting cuts, lacerations, yeah. and that, but it's not gonna stop you getting a concussion.
2: Yeah, I, I think the experience a few years ago when everyone started, including in, in, in youth rugby, started wearing body armor. Yeah. You know, to sort of reinforce shoulder pads and the uh, stuff around the chest, and suddenly everyone thinks they're JPR Williams. They 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 tackle in a completely different way, far more aggressively, because they think they're protected. And then you you just create it's the same song, you know, same tune, different song. You know, you just recreate the situation in a slightly different way. I I think the game has a massive problem with this stuff. Uh, But back in your day, Alistair, of course, the natural tackle was around the legs, wasn't it?
1: Broadly, well, absolutely, and we and everybody was trained to tackle to aim for that space just above the knee and below the hips. Uh, and drive into the tackle, and, and there was an awful lot on safe tackling uh, uh, when we were taught, but also, uh, looking back, uh, I don't think I ever practiced tackling, because you want to save yourself from the game, you know? You don't, you don't, want to, you don't want to get hurt in training, that was my idea, so why would you practice tackling? When the guy runs at you, you got time?
3: lucky there, we used to have a tackle practice every Tuesday, yeah, it was hellish. Yeah, I saw a video once of Mike Rafter at Luke's, and he he was surrounded by a circle of Lukes, eight, and he was in the middle, and he was given one minute, and he had to tackle as many of them as he could in sixty seconds, and he was like absolutely punch drunk at the end of it. Yeah, they they did used to practice, but. Maybe I just avoided the tackling. I, don't know. I remember
2: Rob Andrew saying before the, the famous 95 World Cup semi final when England were Jonah Lomu out of the tournament and no one had ever seen anything quite like it. He said they'd had one session of drift defence before yes. that meeting with the All Blacks. But of course, <laughs> then that they'd all trained to drift away from Jonah Lomu. <laughs> So so it was an interesting technique.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think our our tackle practice was you take JPR. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Do you think then that tackles have got higher since players have added that size in the, in, well, particularly in their upper body and they feel that they can knock players backwards through the, through an impact hit? And you, you know, you see the, the pick up and drive hit, which is the one that starts low and you drive up. But obviously the Courtney Laws hit where you literally just shock the bo- the other player's body from, you know, almost the chest area. I suppose that didn't used to exist in quite the same degree.
1: Not really. I mean, it's, it seems to me to be an import from rugby league in that, you know, there's an awful lot of, of tackling around the chest trying to dislodge the ball and the double tackle the the defensive gurus that have come in have said you know instead of a man on man tackle it's now a double tackle you one's got to hit low and one's got to hit high you couldn't both hit low cuz you'd knock each other out so yeah the the, the increase in the, in fitness and and in defensive strategies has mean that has meant that it's much more than a one on one tackle than it used to be perhaps and it's the double tackle the, the knocking of a player from both sides uh, when he obviously can't see both the tackles coming that is much harder and- and if you double tackle someone, one of you's got to go high. It's also true,
2: isn't it, that the, the, the idea now, as, as Oliver says, you're looking to dislodge the ball as they do in league, but you're also trying to stop the offload. Yeah. That wasn't, that wasn't such a massive part of the game back in the day because an effective tackle around the legs, bringing the ball carrier to ground, yeah. you then had a ruck where yeah. you had every chance of winning the ball if you were yeah. there in numbers quickly. Yeah, But the numbers game around the ball... Has yeah. completely gone away. Yeah, I mean, some people, some teams don't put people in the ruck at all. So yeah. now you are on to just individual collisions. Yeah. Maybe two on one, but it's absolutely not the same as yeah. uh, tackling a bloke to the floor in yeah. the old days. And then it's a numbers game to win the ball. Players going past the ball to win mm-hmm. the ball. And the quickest yeah. to the breakdown would, would would win the ball. So it was far easier to get the ball back. Yeah, than it is now.
1: And and play, you know, the forwards would <laughs> would try and get across the field to the breakdown, and they'd all pile in instead yeah. of spreading out across the field as they do now. And it was, you know, the forwards were trained to do that to to act to hunt as a pack, to ruck as a pack, you know, to get to the breakdown quickly, and that was their job to follow the breakdown, follow the ball, which um, made more space on the field for twinkle toes like you. Absolutely, That's, I'm all
3: in favor. Was all in favor of that. Still, happens. I think there's one other factor as well, guys, and that was. Is- Pacific Island tackling technique. Sort of late eighties, nineties, when they sort of really came into the game, and we thought it was fantastic. You know, the, the spectacular high hits. This is in our ignorance back then. And of course, I mean, the reason they went in that high is when you're playing hundred degrees heat in a pier or Suva, and the ground's bone hard. It's not so inviting to go down low. So you do aim for the chest, torso, and of course, that inevitably, you go high if you if you if you misjudge it. And, um, you know, their, their influence on the game is so massive, you know, something like 15% of the world's professional rugby players are Pacific Island or Pacific Island heritage. And, and that combined with rugby league, which came in at exactly the same time, didn't it? Sort of early yeah. 90s. Um, it was a sort of um, perfect storm in terms of taking the tackle height up from knee to mid-torso. And we've never really returned to where we were. We're tinkering around the edges, aren't we? Sort of where the yeah. level of the chest is. and the,
1: yeah. But whether it's a culture thing, you know, how do you retrain people to tackle low? To start, you know, it's going to be very interesting to see what rugby can do.
0: Well, I suppose the other issue, and we've spoken about this on the podcast before, is that the, the height difference between the tallest player on the pitch and the shortest player on the pitch has also never been greater now. Okay. Because the, there's been a resurgence of, for example, the sh- the small winger or even the the, sh- the short number seven. And obviously you, you're getting these six foot eight, six foot ten guys trying to tackle them. And it becomes impossible if you're trained not to tackle around the knees, but around the chest. it, it, it You don't crouch in the same way, do you?
1: No, I mean, physically there's going to be some differences.
0: And just I'm not going to centre on too many refereeing decisions from this weekend, but just while we're on <laughs> the subject... The Andrew Porter tackle on Brodie Retallick has obviously come under a lot of scrutiny because there were parallels between Angus Tarvau's hit on Gary Ringrose, which was given a red. Andrew Porter was given a yellow. Do we think that was the right decision?
2: Well, look, if Wayne Barnes has annoyed the Kiwis once again, then I can't say I'm going to break my heart worrying about it, it. In all seriousness, it was a very nuanced decision. I think he's got a very sound basis in law, He's been supported in Porter's uh, in the outcome of Porter's disciplinary hearing. But I, th- I find in it the problem for a game like rugby, which is trying to grow itself and attract more and more interest, more and more eyeballs on screen. Everything is incredibly nuanced at the moment. And those nuances... Are magnified by the fact that you can just, that the officials can just go straight upstairs and pretty much look at everything they, you know, they're not sure about. So the amount of checking that's going on is huge. So, what is the difference between an aggressive tackle and an, an, an absorption tackle, which is what was at the heart of the, the difference in yeah. the two incidents you're talking about? Yes, there are differences. And if you want to study it in the way some people study law, then those differences become clear. I think Barnes was absolutely right. In 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 essence, to the letter of the law, but how many people are understanding this stuff in real time leaves me worried. And you can you can have the breakdown, you can have the line out, you can have the driving more. There are a million things that people may or may not be able to do, depending on the referee and how he sees it, and how it's then uh, put on the big screen. And I'm not sure that. Rugby becoming more nuanced and more complex as it goes on is going to help it in the longer term if it's really looking to grow itself as a world game.
3: The other thing, Chris, is I I became aware of this term, you know, absorbing the tackle, probably in the last two months of the Premiership season when the Premier refs seemed to be adopting it and using it and I sort of understood it. But I wasn't aware of it being used in any other rugby, in any of the other leagues uh, and any of the other test matches. So it seemed to me a very Premiership, English referee interpretation, and I, I, like Chris, I think he got it right. But as ever, it's the consistency across the board, across the world that you're looking for. Uh, and rugby still seems to sort of struggle to get that. Yeah, I think the problem is TMOs. I, I really do think <laughs> that's
1: the biggest problem is that you know, for all the weather, there is no technology at the moment that can analyze or de- define intent. So who knows what the intent of any tackler was at any one time? Am I absorbing this or am I hitting the bloke? You can't tell that. Only the best, I mean, not even the referee can tell it, but he has a much better chance because he's on the field and he reads the tempo of the game and he understands the interaction between the players. He has a much better idea of things like intent and when you say well any head-on-head collision equals red card then that's nice and easy for television viewers to say and people on social media and everywhere else and partisan fans that's nice and easy but it doesn't doesn't at all interpret what's actually happening on the field and it can't be done on a screen it has to be done by the referee so my logic might even take me to say let's ban tmos altogether
3: Except for try decisions,
1: no, no, no? The no, decision is final. The referee is right, even if he's wrong. That's what you know. That was a thing that was drummed into us at school. That you know, we, the referee might be that might be biased to one side or whatever, but you, you respect his decision. And and how can a referee decide when they do all those try touchdowns? And things? there's a whole lot of areas where it's still not, it's, you know, you can look at it 15, 16 times on the telly and it's still not decisive enough. You're far, and you're wasting a lot of time. You're far That's, better off saying, you're the judge. Sorry, Higgy, looking at it
2: purely romantically, I think I think the glory of sport is based around controversy and yeah. about the fact that you feel you were robbed last time. I mean, the whole Wales-New Zealand rivalry yeah. stems <laughs> back to one dodgy tricor with a bloke in walking shoes who, who, who arrived at the scene about half an hour late in 1905. Yeah. And they're still whinging about it. They're still, they're, they're still moans about the famous 1978 dive out of the line by Andy Hayes. which gave New Zealand a a, a match-winning penalty and, and indeed, a grand slam, I think, um, uh, as it turned out. This idea that every decision has to be correct because the game is so important, it doesn't really work in the way that these things are framed. If we go back to cricket for a second, you're limited to a number of reviews. Well, that's philosophically incoherent. If you want every decision to be correct, you should have unlimited reviews because you can use up your reviews in the first three overs and spend the rest of the day being robbed blind. Yeah. Well, that's that's all entirely it's it's just incoherent. Yeah. And I do I do have some romantic sympathy with with Alistair when he says let's just get back to the referee's call and you shrug your shoulders and say right we'll get our revenge next time.
0: I'm not sure the referees would thank you for that because then there will be all the replays and the scrutiny without the decision correcting. They'd be responsible for all sorts of heartbreak. But I think that's perfectly arguable.
2: But they should man up
1: (laughs) (laughs) and and get the backing of the of the of the the governing bodies. They say we've appointed this guy to be the referee. He is. Yeah, we trust him. We back his decisions, even if we can, even if you on the television can see. That they were slightly incorrect. We still backed him. We picked him for that game. We, as the governing body, can maybe not pick him for future games, but let's leave it there.
2: Well, we have to remember that referees, of course, are being assessed
1: relentlessly.
2: Yeah. absolutely relentlessly. I mean, there's whole yeah. pages of box ticking going on every performance. That's really that's really tough for referees, and and you know, it's it's a profession for them, so you can't really blame them for for trying to err on the side of caution as much as possible. So when, when actually the game cries out for clarity of decision, let's crack on with it.
0: Well, next time we get a referee on this podcast, I will float the idea of no TMO to them and see on, whether man. that vibes with them or not. Um, so- Last
2: time I spoke to a referee seriously, I was sent off. So I'm not going to that
0: ever again. I guess you won't be joining for that podcast then, Chris, or you might be kicked out earlier than than our audience wants you to be. I'll
2: be red carded in time for an early coffee.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, Alistair, very quickly, I'm going to put you on the spot. Every time we have uh, an English player or an ex-English player on, I ask them about current England selection to do yep. with their unit. Now, you're a fullback yourself. So if I want your starting back three for England, imagine the World Cup finals tomorrow. Who are you picking?
1: Blimey. Stewart. Well, he's Come, he, he's made himself a master of the high ball, which unfortunately is a current staple, and that's another D in my bonnet. Uh, <laughs> the high ball, yes. Yeah, so Stewart's got to be got to be yeah. the flag. wingers. If it, the full, if the World Cup final was tomorrow,
0: imagine everyone's fit and firing and at your disposal. Because I, yeah, I, it's tomorrow, but it's also a year and a bit away.
1: Johnny May would have to play because he's got that out and out pace, and I would possibly go. May and Watson.
0: May Watson Stewards. Yeah. Okay, sticking by. I guess you've got a decent amount of experience as well. Okay, fantastic. Now let's get to this weekend. We spent quite a lot of time on that digression, but it was a really fascinating topic. So thank you for that. So yeah, let's actually let's actually talk about the summer series now. Now, first of all, I want just a general overview. It was a pretty damn good summer series of rugby, and it's had its critics, but this weekend it kind of really met the standard that the first two weekends had set. And what's particularly exciting, we commented on this last week, and Alistair, I'd like to hear your thoughts on it as well, is how close the north-south divide is in terms of hemispheres. Now, we had four narrow 2-1 wins. Overall, the aggregate score between northern hemisphere, southern hemisphere, this is taking the four series, including Scotland, Argentina, Wales, South Africa, Australia, England, New Zealand, Ireland, 280 points to 282, north versus south. So, you know, it's so, so tight. And obviously, you've got eight of the nine best teams in the world there, France apart. You've got Ireland, South Africa, and England obviously taking series wins, potentially showing that they can challenge France, particularly Ireland. What I'm saying is that we're gearing towards a World Cup that is surely one of the most closely cut ever. Would you agree with that?
1: Absolutely. I think that, um, you know, the the way Ireland actually won in New Zealand was a fantastic exhibition of how to beat the All Blacks, how to play good rugby consistently, using your brains and keeping the momentum up. The All Blacks have always had this aura about them that even if you're ahead on the scoreboard, they're somehow going to find a way of winning. But the the Irish got in front and stayed there, which I thought was absolutely exceptional. Uh, It seemed a bit odd in the first Test where they scored the points and then let the All Blacks in in the sort of traditional way we've always come to believe. So, yeah, the Ireland were great. England weren't that convincing, but I'm one of these people that looks at England, that sort of expects them to lose or expects them not to play well, so that I can always be pleasantly surprised. But yes, there are signs that, that England are getting it there. I'm still worried that they're not really creating scores, they're not scoring tries. Marcus Smith's interception try couple of short range ones you know they're not creating in the way that the other teams are but very good performance wales battled hard but i didn't think south africa played that well as well as they can do or as well as uh, their reputation will 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 ensure that they do and they'll certainly be a lot better come the world cup but yeah there there is a lot of hope that they get, that the world cup the next one will be much more we'll have better more quality games
0: and the main story obviously is Ireland and getting that series win on New Zealand soil the week after they get their first win on New Zealand soil. Now, first of all, Brendan, just say something on, well, what a game it was, right?
3: It was, it was terrific. I mean, we, we had a long chat about this last week, didn't we? And we, we just wondered, we thought perhaps Ireland had gone into new territory. We're expecting a massive All Blacks comeback. And it never quite happened from the All Blacks, did it? You know, as, as ever, Ireland, out of the blocks brilliantly. Um, I think I read somewhere that the first 20 minutes uh, of the three test matches, they they won 20-nil. You know, they didn't let New Zealand in. And that's what you've got to do against New Zealand. You've got to get off to a start. Uh, and when New Zealand did close, and you know, that 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 really good third quarter where you thought, hang on, here we go. Ireland got proactive again, went on the front foot. They needed to score another 10 points and that's what they did right there and then. So historically it's fantastic. It's up there with the 37 box and the 86 Australian team. And I think it's also worth pointing out that the two matches against the Maori was was significant. You know, to take Maori on in midweek matches before the test matches was pretty brave, and they and they came out one all on that. So happy days for Irish rugby. You know, I think they will kick on from this. I don't I don't see the traditional mid World Cup dip happening this time. So I think they'll they'll go into Rugby World Cup twenty twenty three in very fine fettle. One thing
2: that really struck me about the Ireland side is. I think you're absolutely right to identify that last 20 minutes or so, last quarter now, whenever it was, because the All Blacks were on the surge then. Mm. Mistake-ridden, though they were during the game, we've seen a dozen times, a million times, haven't we, Of mm. All Blacks reading in a lead and then moving away, going up through the gears, moving away. So that was a fantastic display of discipline and cool-headedness. Uh, from the Irish to come out in the way they did, but the go down to a couple of individuals. we've all known that the All Blacks are struggling a little bit to replace Nonu and Conrad Smith as a center as their optimum center pairing and they've not managed to arrive at that. We do think that their front row maybe is not all it was back in the uh, back a few years ago, particularly the 2015 side. but no one ever has a problem with Retallick and Sam Whitelock as world-class second rows, and they were completely rubbed out by Ty Byrne and James Ryan, playing in very different ways. Ryan, actually, Byrne got a lot of headlines because he does a lot of the really eye-catching stuff, the the, the ball-winning stuff, the jackaling, he's he's outstanding, and he's got the lungs of an elephant, so that's that's absolutely fine. He gets around the field, he's a terrific player. But Ryan, as a tight forward, as a tight second row, I thought he made a massive difference. For Ireland on Saturday, he's right back to his best, and I think he's a genuine, absolutely genuine world-class class player. by which I mean, he would be in a world 15 tomorrow.
0: You'd have Ryan ahead of Byrne in your world 15 because I think many would be saying the opposite.
2: Well, I, I think I think that's possible, but 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 I think genuine. If you if you look at locking partnerships, and I know the game has changed uh, a little bit, but to me, um, it is still the ideal locking partnership to have a tighter and a looser, you know, a, a four and five, whatever number's on their back. Yeah, one of them's got to play the Martin Johnson role, and one of them plays the John Eels role. Your dream second row from heaven would be Johnson and Eels. I mean, I've never... I, I, can't, I can't imagine that anything that I'm likely to see would be better than that theoretical partnership. But I think Ryan, is a tight forward, and there aren't so many of them around, because a lot of blokes play a lot of football these days. There aren't so many of those. And that doesn't mean to say he can't play football. He's a really talented player. But I think his disciplines and his attitude towards the game and his understanding of his role in that pack, I think is absolutely outstanding. And he's right back to his best. He always looked a the world beater at the start. He had injuries and a flat period. He's right back up there. And if he's going to continue on that trajectory to the World Cup, Ireland have, and you don't often say this about second rows, they have a genuine match winner.
0: Now, Ireland are world number one. This happened about a year out from the 2019 World Cup as well. And there's a little interesting parallel we've already spoken about both in this episode and previous episodes about Ireland classically peaking too early. And that was certainly the case in 2019. So certain parallel there, I suppose. Brendan, you've already said that you think this won't happen again. Alistair, what do you think this side possesses that Joe Schmidt's side potentially lacked in 2019 that would mean that they won't have this same dip?
1: Well, I think they have an ability to think off a, on the hoof a bit more than, than Joe Schmidt's side did have. You know, it's all very well taking people and t- saying this is how you react and, and turning them into very efficient machines, but thankfully, rugby is a game in which brains aren't necessary as well. And you need to be able to spot gaps, to work out overlaps, to create the space. And if you're still operating on the the mechanical process of getting things, getting the technique right, you haven't got time to do the, the thinking and the imagination bit. I think this lot have matured enough to be able to spot where the gaps are, to be able to think on the hoof, to adapt to what they see in front of them. And that makes them much more dangerous. The only drawback I would say is that we still don't know to, enough about uh, Joey Carberry. Uh, Sexton is vital to their, to their creative and to their, their, their shape. Uh, and I think somebody needs to perhaps say to him, have a strategic injury for a few for a few months, and we'll put Joey Carberry in or another player. I
2: think that's interesting, Higgy. Um, and everything you say about what Ireland are doing now that they weren't particularly doing under Schmidt is is absolutely correct. But of course, the key to that is the ability to inject pace into your game. And they change changing scrum half. I'm not sure Jameson Gibson parts the best scrum half I've ever seen, but what he does do injects real pace he, he's got some real zip about him he he ups the tempo he starts at high tempo but he's got a lot more in the tank and Connor Murray brilliant <laughs> at the things he was brilliant at yeah um physical box kicking etc 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 you know the snipe the break all those things he could do but he was a bit one paced and Ireland were one paced under schmidt i think they were they were a bit straight jacketed i think farrell and mike Catt, and whoever else is in that mix over there just let them turn the taps on a little bit but understood that they need a scrum half who's able to create the environment in which those things can be done
3: and let's not underestimate the effect of farrell here as the coach i was um I was very taken with a few comments he he made after the match. Because like many, I thought this might be a tour too far this summer in terms of fatigue, Leinster players off the boil, three test matches, two Mario matches. I thought this, you know, there'd be a couple of good performances, but it might go horribly wrong. And it seems that he got them all together. They only had a three-day camp. And he said, this isn't the end of this season, last season. This is the start of next season. I think it was a real mental switch there. He said, this is the start of the World Cup season we go from here. And I think that was a clever ploy by him. And I think he's, you know, he's a great bloke, Farrell, but I think he's a cleverer coach and sometimes we give him credit for.
0: And I think perhaps the transformation of Johnny Sexton is an embodiment of the effect Farrell's had because under Schmidt, Sexton was seen as an embodiment of Schmidt's style, you know, rigid systems and structures and it, ensuring their exact execution. But like you said, Alistair, there wasn't that necessarily ability to when you're under the pump think on the spot and make the odd thing or two happen that you can't necessarily train and have your your plan for so do you think farrell's style has been something that sexton's had to adapt to or do you think sexton has been the leader in recognizing okay this didn't work with joe schmidt we need to be visionaries as much as we do stick to the script
1: well, I think it's every player's dream is to be able to to be creative. I don't think anybody wants to be uh, sticking to the script all the time. And so, yes, to be given the freedom to make those decisions. But as Chris said, if you've got the ball a little bit quicker, even if it's a nanosecond quicker, you've got more time to make decisions, to make your choices. And, you know, I, I used to be a scrum half, but before I was a fullback. And we were always taught the ball, you've got to get the ball away quickly, you know, and all the great scrum halves in my mind in my memory have all had that ability to, to move the ball quickly and Gibson Park and Aaron Smith and Antoine Dupont all have that ability to get the ball away. And maybe if we were being hypercritical of our, our English scrum halves, they will take a step. They will seem to take a little step before they get the ball away. And that makes it much more difficult for those outside them.
2: I don't know what the stats are. Um, and, and if the stats ever become available, they may prove me entirely wrong. But my sense is that Ireland sweat a lot less for their points at the moment than they were under Schmidt. They would they would score under Schmidt for sure, but it just seemed that there were an awful lot of sort of siege tries, territorially based tries from Ireland. And, and those things are hard work. They take a they take a lot out of you to score. I'm not saying Ireland is scoring easily, but they're scoring more quickly. They seem to go through fewer phases They're making more ground with ball in hand. They're opening up ground a hell of a lot more easily uh, and more productively than they were under Schmidt. And I I think that does help you. When you get the last 20 minutes and the All Blacks are coming out of you, you might have something left in the tank, which you may not have had four years ago.
0: Andy Farrell's obviously on cloud nine. Someone who isn't is Ian Foster. Now, at 16 wins from 24, he's got the worst win-loss ratio of any All Black side in the professional era. One thing, I was reading an article And it said that New Zealand man for man are more talented than Ireland. And if that's the case, and I don't know that that is necessarily the case, is this a question then of just the way they're coached and their leadership set up? And we know there are problems there. Or do you genuinely think, and this is a question to the floor, that there is a lack of manpower? I suppose this article was based on the fact that you saw New Zealand's three tries, for example, moments of brilliance from Akira Ioani, Ardi Sevilla and Will Jordan. And you have that star power, those people that can make something happen out of nothing but actually it's the wearing down a team through your systems and leadership to sort of take a match that isn't going away by the scruff of the neck that they're lacking
3: I would say New Zealand used to have nine or ten of those players they, they have a, those names you mentioned are the only real star they've got at the moment I think they're very short on manpower by New Zealand standards um, and that king and I mean, you know the the real world-class quality in that series came from Ireland So I don't know where this article was. I think that's a little bit cloud cuckoo land to think that New Zealand at this present time have got better individuals than Ireland. I don't think they anywhere near have got that.
1: Yeah, well, that might be down to the selection, mightn't it? Because, you know, New Zealand is a factory that produces very, very good rugby players, very powerful rugby players, and rugby players who generally have a lot more sense about how rugby should be played, a bit more rugby brain, as you like to say. So they are probably there. But whether they're being fed through the system in the right way leaves it open to doubt. But again, if you've got a coach that succeeds and moves on, it's very much a case of saying, well, I'm not going to broke anything. You know, if it ain't fixed, I ain't, you know, if it ain't broke, I ain't going to fix it. So New Zealand's always been a slow development. And maybe they needed someone to actually come in and say, you know, we have to change the, the momentum of change. We have to get in there and do something very different. Otherwise, everybody is as they are doing. He's going to catch up with us.
2: I, I think it, I think it is, Claude Cookenland, actually, who, who, whoever was saying that, you wouldn't have picked any of their front, just, just on a straight choice, you wouldn't have picked yeah. any of their front row no. above the above the Irish. Brodie Retallick is not the player he was before he went to Japan. Uh, Sam Whitelock, who I think is a, a wonderful player and he's still capable of pulling everything together and, and getting a performance out of the people around him. But he's hardly the youngest now, is he? Sam Kane. I mean, he's had his injury problems. He gets a lot of criticism anyway. You know, he's not Richie McCourt, neither was anyone else. However, they're not as pre they're not preeminent in the seven position as they have been for tricky donkey years. Going back to Michael Jones and 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 way before. Um, I'm not sure that they decided what they really wanted ten because Mo Moen- is a very good player. They decided to go with Bowden Barrett because Geordie Barrett can kick the goals. If Geordie Barrett's not there, then Mounga plays because Bowden can't kick the goals with any reliability. They are struggling at centre, without a doubt. And they will always be dangerous, always be dangerous on the wings. I mean, they're, they're, they've got a fantastic tradition in the back three now of attacking runners. But that's, by new senior standards, quite sparse. There's a lot of holes in that
0: description. So six months ago, Mark Robinson, New Zealand rugby chief executive, said that there would be a review on Foster following the autumn. And obviously, they they no doubt identified things that need to change and put in place a plan for how that was going to be executed in between six months ago and the summer test and or the rugby championship. Now, Mark Robinson, after the, in the fallout <laughs> of the Ireland game, says, OK, it's time to have a re- review of Foster again. Now, usually how these things work is... You review, you say X, Y and Z is not working and then you see whether it can change. And once it can't, you sort of draw a line under it and say, OK, then more wholesale change is needed. My gut is that Foster's still going to be there for the rugby championship. <laughs> I don't know whether you guys disagree, but given that, is that not slightly, there hasn't been enough progress. So what can they possibly be reviewing now?
2: Well, to, to my way of thinking, Ollie, the back end of the Steve Hansen regime and the high, the high watermark of that being the 2015 World Cup, which was a genuinely great side. One, one of the best sides I've I've seen, I think, because they beat some, and demolished, in some cases, some very strong sides on the way through. That was the high watermark. After that, Hansen drew a test series against the Lions, and they got blown out in the semi-final by England in the World Cup, where Hansen patently picked the wrong side. So that was a real downer. Now, on the basis that all the current Tory party leadership candidates are tainted, by, are, tainted, are tainted by their recent cabinet status under under the halfwit. Um, sorry, I didn't really mean to say that. Foster Foster comes out of that stable. I mean, he is, you know, it was a continuity selection. And I'm not sure that that was what a lot of New Zealand, you know, the rank and file New Zealand rugby folk wanted to see. There's, there's a huge bandwagon in favour of Scott Robertson, of course, um, and has been for a while because he's a very flamboyant character. I don't think they necessarily, because of the way that the World Cup ended for them, and it was a real humping uh, that England dished out that day, and they were tactically poor and selectorially poor. I don't think most people wanted to see a continuity candidate um, uh, succeed Hansen. That's what they've got. So there are people lining up against him. Uh, In big numbers. So, yes, I think he will survive for a little while. But if he doesn't go through this rugby championship and come out at the end of it much, much improved, he won't get to the world.
3: There's one other little factor which I saw mentioned somewhere the other day. And I think there's a bit of truth in it. And that's the absence of South African sides from super rugby during COVID and all that. New Zealand domestic rugby doesn't have to face that incredible physicality. hasn't done for two or three years now. And you're saying, Chris, actually, you know, Ireland bettered them in the front five consistently. And I think there's a bit of a wake-up call there for New Zealand rugby about front five strength. And part of that yeah. would be they, they haven't been exposed to what they need to be exposed to for the last 24, 30 months. Now, that is something that they can address and possibly fix in some way. You know, they, they've got a lot of good rugby coming up this summer in the, in the rugby championship. But That's a slight sort of caveat to the general criticism of Foster, perhaps, in that circumstances have played a little part in it, I think.
0: So what has to change between now and the Rugby Championship? And also what has to happen in the Rugby Championship for Foster to stay on? Obviously... New Zealand are now out and out second favourites against the Springboks. Would you say that if they get whitewashed by the Springboks, that then is a real red flag? A Springbok side that, as I think it was Alistair mentioned earlier, is not necessarily at the peak of its powers at the moment either.
1: Yeah, I mean, on the New Zealand statistics, he has to he has to win sort of at least four out of six, or or even more. But I think I think they need to see the, the team perform in a way in which. People can recognise as the All Blacks. They don't make mistakes. They cash in when when the when, they, when the opportunities are there. They don't let any of them, any of them go astray. That's possibly been missing. Reason they're not as maybe this not aren't as ruthless as the All Blacks were when they they spot a weakness up front. They take you on. They deal with it. You know they they've always had this rugby brain that goes, yeah, I know where the jugular is. I'm going for it. And this lot need to show that under Foster. There, yeah. there, are,
2: there are a lot of questions for him to answer. I mean, we've we, we about, about Retallick, for example, and, and he's, he's not the player he was, certainly not the player he was in 2015. Is Aaron Smith the player he was in 2015? I don't think so. To okay. be I mean I mean, DuPont is moved is Miles ahead of him. Yeah, if, yeah. If, you, if you were going to put yeah. one, one to five world scrum halves, Aaron Smith might be in it, but he wouldn't be at the top end of that in the current yeah. form. And if you can't, it's the same with Elliot. Every other side in the world, if you can't find a centre partnership that you're happy with and that you feel is really going to be productive, Rico Ione, I mean, crucky, what a wing. You know, in the 2017 um, Lions series, my goodness, he looked a hell of a player. So, as they did with Christian Cullen in the past, they've shoved him inside, they've shoved him into midfield. I don't think he's quite the player he was. So there, so, there you've got a genuinely brilliant player playing out of position, to my eyes. I think they've got a whole stack of problems
1: over there.
0: In typical the rugby paper podcast fashion, what will now happen is by the time the episode's out, Foster would have been fired and Scott <laughs> Robertson would have taken over. So hopefully that hopefully yeah. that doesn't happen because we have that has happened before. We'll hear hopefully in the next week whether Foster will stick around and then obviously we'll have many many episodes on the rugby championship so stay tuned for that now a break from rugby proceedings now alistair you know about this we do a random rugby 15 section for our special guest 15 questions say as much or as little as you like and yeah when you're ready we'll get going oh nickname
1: higgy although roger Utley calls me the flying pig for some reason
0: (laughs) (laughs) reason unknown reason unknown. okay (laughs) best rugby memory
1: Best rugby memory, winning my first cap. I think that's always always the best thing. But when you realise that you're standing and the anthems are going, this was at Brisbane in 1975, and the anthems are going and you realise that you've achieved what you set out to do, what your parents, your friends, your coaches wanted for you and all of those people in your various teams. So, yeah, you, you just can't beat it, standing up and playing for your country. But when you first hear the anthem, it's incredible.
0: Yeah, most embarrassing rugby memory.
1: Too many. Do you want the commentary one or the or the or the playing one?
0: Or oh, kind of both? Yeah, okay. go on both.
1: <laughs> playing. I was at fullback, making a comeback from injury. Shouldn't have played, but we had a second fifteen game for Cambridge University against the University of East Anglia. And I was pretty tired and hobbling about a bit. And really, it was a very hot day. These are all my excuses coming out now. And um, they kicked the ball ahead. It was going to go into our dead ball area uh, behind the trial. And nobody was really chasing it because they thought, there's the England fullback. He'll touch the ball down and uh, we'll get on. We'll have a 22 dropout. But I was feeling very tired. And I thought mean, if I bend down, it's going to be painful getting back up. If I flop on the ball, how will I get back up? So, in my head, that's when I let's be cool and show them what an England fullback does and just side foot the ball over the dead ball line. And I did that, except it refused to go over the dead ball line. <laughs> and their winger, who was lolloping up behind it without any real hope of doing it, scored a try. <laughs> Um, which was entirely gifted to him by me. So that was that That was that. was one. The commentary moment was was I was presenting the Rugby World Cup in 1995 in South Africa and you're always as presenter at the end of a, a match, it was at the opening game, South Africa, Australia. At the end of the game, you start to throw the, the, the cues around to people in different areas and you're relying on the director telling you where to go next. But unfortunately, the line went down and I was left looking at a camera unable to know where I was going to go next was I going to throw to South Africa to Blumfontein or to Durban or wherever and I was staring at the camera knowing that 10 to 14 million people were looking at me as I was searching for words and my mouth went, and I rushed out with a we're going to take a commercial break but do come back afterwards and I turned to the cameraman and said that was awful and he pointed at the red light which was still on and he said 10 to 14 million people are aware that it was awful so that was my worst moment
0: <laughs> fantastic uh pre-game tune
1: pre-game tune when i w- my first year at cambridge i had one of those tinny cassette players and on a saturday morning i play one, one of the only two cassettes in my possession which was the f- a free band free so it's either be all right now or the hunter
0: nice post-game meal
1: post-game meal um it's got to be at bristol we had the worst food ever but we we were doing it all together and it was bangers and chips or actually no the the best post-game meal was way way back when i was a prep school boy and we were allowed to have chip butties white bread with lots of chips inside wrapped around it with salt and that sort of stuff, and
0: yeah, it was sensational best player you've played against best player I've played against Gareth Edwards best player you've played with I'm going to be controversial
1: the The best outside half I ever played with was a guy called Alan Wordsworth who played for Cambridge University, and he was one of these guys that he sent something, and the rest of you had to react to his lightning quick brain, played once for England. He, he didn't get many, many games. He's an incredibly light guy. He's about 11 stone dripping wet, but he had this brain. And this is my first introduction. I was a scrum half until I went to Cambridge, became a fullback. And just playing with this guy when he opened up possibilities and I could try and run into the gaps was, was best. I think he was the, the best player I played with. He was, he was a lot of fun. Favourite
0: player right now? Favourite
1: player right now is Antoine Dupont.
0: Rugby Idol.
1: Uh, as a kid, I went to to watch South Africa play England at Twickenham 1969. And uh, Darby de Villiers was the name. He had a great name. He was a great scrum half. And I thought he was the the brilliant thing. I was a scrum half at the time. And so Darby de Villiers would, be, would have been the, the the aspiration.
0: Let the record show that when I said Rugby Idol, Chris Hewitt was pointing at himself. Um, <laughs> I take it he he doesn't factor into the debate. Not yet, not yet. Okay, (laughs) favorite stadium,
1: favorite stadium for atmosphere, Millennium Stadium or whatever it's called. Uh, brilliant stuff, not for commentary because uh, it's so noisy that it's very difficult to hear yourself think there. But yes, in terms of, of real atmosphere and a bare pit sort of atmosphere, yes, I would say, uh, the Millennium Stadium,
0: favorite gym exercise. Uh you're talking to the wrong poke here. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: so I'd like to like to say that the, my favourite gym exercise is where you, you have your back straight and your head up and you bend your knees and you engage the core and you get hold of this machine and you lift it slowly up with both hands. Then with the other, then you t- lift let it in one hand and bash it. And if you're lucky, a bar of chocolate comes out. <laughs> <coughs>
0: occupation if rugby didn't exist
1: well I I was trained as a teacher and I became a teacher uh, and would have played and I managed to play cricket in the summer as well as being a teacher but I think I always wanted to be a teacher uh, and if I hadn't played rugby uh, or cricket I would have been a teacher full-time
0: superstitions
1: I always like to be on the winning side Nice.
0: (laughs) rugby law you would change
1: uh, rugby law I would change apart from banishing all TMOs Yeah, I would my, my, my be in the bonnet at the moment is that rugby is a possession game, a handling game so if you kick it away you are sac- you're surrendering your right to have it next so I would have a rule which says once the ball has been kicked the next thing that it touches either has to be a member of the opposition or the <laughs> ground
0: Right, so you're not allowed to comp- contest your own kicks
1: You can't do these kick passes and all, all that sort of thing okay. you, So Box kicks, you give the defender the right to, to have the ball because you're giving it away. If you yeah. want the ball, you hang on to it.
0: Very interesting. That's definitely a new one. Best th- and lastly, best thing about working in rugby? I'd like to, to quote Dudley
1: Wood here, the former secretary of the RFU, the great global freemasonry of rugby. But I think that translates to mates.
0: Nice. That's a very, <laughs> very esteemed way of putting it. Great. Thank you for doing that, Alistair. Let's get back to the rugby now. Let's get on to Australia versus England. There's no doubt Ireland made a statement. Alistair, I'm going to come to you here. Do you think England have made, obviously not of the same scale, because beating this Australian team on home soil is not quite of the same magnitude as beating any New Zealand team on New Zealand soil, but is this a statement for Jones to silence his critics or you remain slightly unconvinced?
1: I remain unconvinced. I think um, they showed traditional English qualities of battling hard and, and fighting when the when the going gets tough. Uh, as they did against Ireland at Twickenham when they lost a Man early. So, yes, they showed all of that great resilience and they, they, the ability to, to batter people. But to score tries, I'm still unconvinced of the way in which their, their attacking machine works. Um, Marcus Smith scoring an interception try, the others at close range. Over-reliance on that rolling maul, which I've always detested. Uh, but it's very productive, of course it is. But, yeah... How are we going to create tries? How is it going to work? And the Smith-Farrell axis has got so many things going for it in its favour, but it's yet to, in my mind, to really spark and create the attacking, the attacking opportunities out wider for the, for the runners. And OK, they've chopped and changed as well. But I think that's a real area where England have got to work on is when they get the ball, is how to, co- to create points with it and not just rely on Farrell's boot. They have to work it out to score tries.
0: I think that points, that tries topic is really interesting, actually, because if we think about not just the Six Na- well, not just the Summer Series, but the Six Nations as well this whole year, I think the number of tries that England have created, not through the rolling ball, you could probably count on one hand. Mm-hmm. I can think of Marcus Smiths against Scotland, Freddie Stewart against France, Henry Arundel uh, in the back end of the Australia game, and uh, Marcus Smith's intercept against Australia. You know, maybe I'm missing one or two yeah. others. But where's this got to come from? Uh, you know, we'd speak about England's lack of attacking intent, and now we've got that Smith-Farrell axis. Are we now saying that actually having two distributors and lacking that punch outside is maybe not the formula? And also. Plaudits have come back out for Marcus Smith, partly because of his try. You know, the Sky um, video they posted saying Smith inspires England win. (laughs) I don't really buy into that. Like his tactical kicking, especially, was kind of found wanting on Saturday, as it was throughout the series. And so once you get the likes of Henry Slade, Manu Tuolangi coming back in, that 10-12 axis becomes much more difficult to justify.
2: I'm I'm in a lot of favour of playing a, a, a ball playing 12 and if, you, if, you, if you're going to pick the beast, and in today's game you need a beast somewhere, you stick him at 13. I mean, people, people think, I mean, Manu Tuolangi, I'm more of an international 12 than Manu Tuolangi is. It is an absolute joke, because the only two things you're going to do with Manu is send him at the middle, while well, that's expected, or you use him as a decoy. And people are already looking for the decoy. I mean, what is the point of this? Seriously, you stick him at 13, where he's played all his best rugby, all his best rugby. And he's running into a softer underbelly of the defence. Soft underbellies don't like the look of Manu charging at them. The All Blacks used to do this all the time. Your Joe Stanley's, your Frank Bunce's, your Bill Osborne's, your Tanu Mangas. None of them played 12 because they couldn't pass the ball and they had no kicking game. Manu Manonu used to be like that, he's but he a developed a kicking game and a passing game. So he was the great, great, he's been the great sort of red herring in people's thought about this. Yeah. Everyone thinks that a 12 has got one role, which is to smash it up, get a yard over to gain nine, and we play off that. But I've seen so many sides just play around that. They know exactly what's going to happen. It's massively predictable. So I'm all in favour of a kicking, passing, footballing 12. If you've got one, like Owen Farrell also loves to tackle, and is also absolutely going to nail your goals in a big game under pressure, yeah. which Marcus Smith has yet to show. He's able to do so. Owens, a big bloke, to drop if you're talking about sticking another twelve in, because your goal kicking's gone and quite a bit of your aggression is gone. And quite, I, I mean, some people might want to drop him, but they know they can't. Heart of hearts, you wouldn't want to go in a World Cup final tomorrow without him on your field on the field
3: of anything. The bottom line, really, is that Marcus Smith hasn't quite yet kicked on as we wanted to. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Marcus Smith. I thought he was absolutely fabulous the season before last when when Queens won. If I was doing player ratings for Marcus Smith for the series, it'd be what, 6.5? He just isn't producing the moments, the Quinn's moments that he's, he's been picked for. Now, it is still pretty early days for him. He's still a young bloke. Uh, and, him and him and Owen are so different, I think, men, mentally, that it will take a little bit of time for them to fuse. You know, they are polar opposites as blokes and players. But I'm a bit disappointed that that... I have not really seen the signs there. And I remember about six weeks ago, we spoke about what do we want from the summer tour? We wanted England to discover something in midfield. Well, we still haven't done it. We've got that. The 10-12 isn't quite working. And then the 12-13 isn't quite working. And you've got great players outside, but they're not really getting enough of the ball. Um, the amount of possession we'd like to see them get. So... It's been a successful tour, in in obviously a series win, and it's bought Eddie time and the feel good factors back a little bit. But actually, I'm not sure how far it's progressed England towards the team that we want them to be.
2: And, and if England were looking to play a wider, more dynamic game, to to use the old cliches, you also need a continuity seven. Even even now, I mean, that was certainly certainly the case when Alistair was
1: was yeah.
2: playing back in Edwardian times. Um, um, the continuity sevens were crucial. And yeah. just to go back to Arnhem for a second, people still don't give the bloke the credit he deserves. Josh van der Fleer has turned into a proper player.
1: Yeah.
2: A, a brilliant player. He's terrific over the ball. He misses very few tackles. His long-range support play is quite old-fashioned in a way. I mean, I mean, it's almost like the old Michael Jones type of stuff when he was playing in a different half of the pitch to half of this pack. Um, I think that that's a big thing. And, and England have some good sevens, but I'm not sure that they're continuity sevens in the way I'm talking about because that's not the way England have been playing for since
1: Eddie Jones has been in charge. It seems to me that Marcus Smith is inhibited by the, the environment in which he's found himself. He's not, given, it seems to me, given the licensed to be creative on his own terms he it seems to me that he's he's got the captain just inside him he's a little bit inhibited by having to do what the captain says because it's all about the, and the, you've got to, if you've got a, a coach that says we get into this half the field you play by numbers almost then it's very very difficult for somebody like Smith to say god I see something let's go and you need people that can react around him and so that combination of 10 and 12 you need a 12 to go i see what the, i can understand what the 10's thinking and get myself into the right position to support him and the same applies for all the people behind him the, the 13s 14s 15s have to go ah the 12 is going to the 10 is going to do something let's work out the best way of getting there if you play too much by structure and numbers and if we're in this half of the field we do that and if that half, we do that then you lose those nanoseconds where instinctively and this is been a great compliment to the french teams of the past if they see a try on they flood into the gaps and the new zealanders used to do that they certainly did that in the first test if they think there's a chance an overturn or whatever they're all racing into the positions to make that into turn that into something spectacular i just think England, and i can only infer that it's because they're just working out where should i be instead of just going instinctively we've got the ball let's create something let's go uh, and I, I wonder if whether they're... You call it overcoaching or just feeling that need to stick to a system that they can all understand. There I is- think
2: you've hit the nail on the head there, Higgy. It's the messaging that Smith is getting. Yeah. It's, one, it's one thing to say, Marcus, we bat you completely. Yeah. You're the 10. You're making the course. Of course, in French rugby, it's slightly different because this is much more around the scrum half, yeah. traditionally, than, than, than the outside half. But in England, it's, it's fine to say, Marcus... You're running our game, and we stand by you. You're running our game, you play it as you see it. It's the old Brian Ashton yep. style of play what's in front of you. If that's the message, OK, if the message is, Marcus, you can be as bold as you like until you get it wrong, and then there'll be a row, which I suspect is more likely the case, then that's
3: inhibiting massively. And yeah. you're never going to see the best of it. You need- He's not the first one to, to suffer this. Do you remember Danny Cipriani... Yeah. 2018, third test against South Africa, given his one chance in about nine years to sort of state his case. And he had Owen Farrell inside him and Ben Youngs at nine. I think he touched the ball about nine times in the match. He just wasn't a factor because just instinctively, Youngs was looking for Farrell and or Youngs was making the call, Farrell was making the call. So except for that wonder kick to make Johnny Mays try, Danny wasn't really, didn't feature in that match. He he just couldn't impose himself. Uh, and he couldn't. He, he really couldn't function unless he was in charge. Yeah. No, he had to be in yeah. charge. Oh, that was and, it. Yeah. And he had yeah that in
2: sure rugby, the arrogance to say, if you're going to give me, yeah. if you're going to give me the number ten shirt, you're yeah. really going to have to do as I. you really going to have to do as I tell you. As, as,
1: any, be here. as any self-respecting number ten should should do. And but it's a question. You know, if you, if he's the ten and Farrell's the twelve, Farrell has to learn to take a big step backwards and to be. Uh, a lieutenant rather than what he has been for the last 20 odd tests as, as the boss, the leader, the whatever. And that's going to take some time. It's, it's still in my mind, a potential good combination. It that does therefore depend on who you get around you, but to wait for Manu is, is, is an existential crisis of its own. Waiting for Manu is never going to make it. I mean, you know, you can't base your whole selection and your whole strategy on waiting for Manu.
0: There's a play in that somewhere.
1: Yeah, clever <laughs> yeah,
0: bloke. Well, in a way, we are still waiting for Manu, sadly, <laughs> because we're waiting for, like like Chris said, that, that beast at 12 or 13, wherever you want to put him. And I think a lot of people would argue that England's best midfield of the past four or five seasons has been Farrell, Tuolangi, Slade, 10, 12, 13. I think there'll be cases for that once Tuolangi and Slade come back. If Tuolangi comes back, Slade obviously hopefully will. And then bringing Smith off the bench to run at a tired defence. Chris, does that still not ring right with you? Because you're sticking then Tuolangi at 12. And because there there are midfields in the world that work with that ballast at twelve who doesn't necessarily have the passing kicking game. Jonathan Danty doesn't have it so much. Andre Estehazen doesn't have it so much. And obviously there are more twelves than thirteens in oh, in the coach'es. Estehazen's
3: a much much more adroit player. I think than Manu. in terms, he has got a kicking game. Actually, he's got a hell of a left boot for clearance kicks, he and he's got some lovely team. offloads. Estehazen. So I don't think that's quite a fair comparison. Okay. Um,
0: Jonathan Dante then.
3: Yeah, I, I, Jonathan Dante would be a little bit more like exactly. it, but even he's upped his game like like Nonu did. He's learning stuff.
0: He he's he's added a lot, but I, I I
2: never I never think that the French, because and it's it's a glory of rugby. This is by no means a criticism, quite the opposite. I don't think it's a useful comparison because the French do play, do do, do a lot of things wholly differently to anyone else, in, including running running pretty much everything off nine. Which is which you know re, really doesn't happen. I mean, I mean the French have a long tradition of fly-outs you can't remember um, because they're you know they do other uh, they do other things in different positions in the ways that teams don't. The the Wallabies, the great Wallaby sides, have generally had a footballer at twelve, a, a good footballer. I mean, Matt, Matt Guiteau transformed them in 2015, and they, they were a genuinely threatening side to the All Blacks in that World Cup final, and they and they picked up a couple of injuries early in the game, and there was a dodgy try, etc., and it didn't quite work for them, but I do think the best of their, uh, the, the, the the best of the wallabies that we've seen down the years do have a footballer at 12. The All Blacks, until none who came along, always picked them for, they called them, the second 5-8. That was, you know, it was first 5-8, yeah. five-eighth, five, centre, and the centre was the big guy. The centre was Tana, or somebody, so yes, yes, of course. I mean, there's the Jamie Roberts example. Um, and he was, there was more to Jamie than, than a truck it up blunderbuss. But he was quite happy to be a truck it up blunderbuss because that's the way Wales decided to play. Scotland try and do things slightly differently. And it's, it's, it's also quite interesting that Henshaw, with Ireland, is much more of a footballer than some of the, some of the truck it up twelves, yeah. Much more because he has rich experience at 13 as well. So there, there are, there are. I, I, I just get slightly frustrated with the Tulangi debate. No, no, I, I think he's a big name. He's a big figure. He's a celebrity rugby player, and I, I, get all that. But I think that, and this has been going on for a decade now. The notion that he is the English panacea, that he's, he's the, the corrective to all our perceived ills in the back division and that if we could just get Manning fit for longer than 20 minutes, we would be world champions in waiting is infantile.
0: I think we're, we're, we're our own worst enemy because we have had this debate many, many times on the rugby paper. <laughs> in, in your, yeah, Chris, you weren't there for those episodes, but we absolutely have. And I think we'd argue that, yeah, certainly Guy Porter didn't necessarily stake his claim for the 13 shot, especially on Saturday, because he did end up falling off quite a few tackles. Another player that obviously didn't is Danny Kerr. Hooked at 35 36 minutes. We've seen this before with the likes of Luther Burrell from Eddie Jones. It quite often spells the end. Do we think we'll see him in an England shirt, or is that him done? He's done,
1: He's done. So but great. I, you know, I think this is symptomatic of the whole. Number nine problem that England have had for all these years, and you know, fair play to to Ben Youngs and all that sort of thing. But he's never he's never been the quickest passer of the ball, getting it away from the base. And for a hundred odd caps he's played, he's been England's man, the go-to man. He's a great box kicker, and and he's very good in, within the team setup. But that first thing, my first principle of scrum half play is to get the ball away quickly. Now we've decided, you know, for whatever reasons jones decided that care wasn't his backup and then he's messed around with scrum half replacements and scrum people who can come in with experience so you're dan robson's and various others who've who've had a go but not been kept faith with and so we're still we're at that point where care has probably gone out of the the equation jack van portfleet i thought had a terrific series and looked very very good but you know, where's the rest? There should be, they should be piling up behind. And I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that Eddie knows what he wants his number nine to do.
2: The, the irony is, to, to my way of thinking, that, and I'm thinking back to when Brian Ashton was in charge in 2007 England went to a World Cup with a sevens scrum half in Peter Richards, a basically untried scrum half uh, who would not have been a sevens player as long as he walked the face of the earth in Sean Perry. Yeah. Uh, from Bristol, and Andy, Andy Gomesall, who was basically <laughs> tracked out of retirement because Harry Ellis had got injured, yeah. and no-one else was around. The cupboard was bare of nines. Yeah. Spool forward to now, 15 years on, I think there's more of decent number nines playing in English rugby than I can remember for ages. Agreed. You've got your Alex Mitchells, Van Portley, Harry Randall, the Rafi Quirk. Um, you, th- th- there's a bunch of them. Oh, I yeah. Mean, that's not to, not to forget someone like Dan Robson who's, who's had half a go and not much more. But for some reason, Ben Young's has just proved an, an, an immovable object. And yeah. like Alistair, I don't quite understand why. I think Ben, when he's good, is very, very good. But like the girl in the nursery rhyme, when he's bad, he's <laughs> not awful exactly, but let's yeah. say not so good, I think, under pressure. And it's just a fading. I do think of Eddie's racing, that the, the, the number nine position in particular has not really does not really have much more clarity around it. Than it,
3: it um... I mean, Ben Youngs has had some quiet half hours in his career, shall we say, and he's missed a few kicks. And that would he have been icked off after 33 minutes or whatever it was? I don't think so. You know, it's a sort of inconsistency, which I don't think the players within the squad, but particularly enjoy. No,
2: I agree with that. It's a public humiliation, that isn't it?
3: Yeah, and Danny was sort of, you know, almost not doing England a favour. You never do England a favour, you get picked on merit. But, you know, he hadn't been, what was it three yeah. years he hadn't played for England? You know, he got his, his hopes and got up again. Instead of going off on a month holiday with a family, he's on tour with England. You know, he'd put it on the line again and then he gets booted out after 33 minutes.
2: Well, well I do remember Phil Vickery being uh, replaced very, very early in a Lions test match against South Africa in Durban. When he, when he was having a terrible, terrible... He'd had a terrible half against the Beast in the opening test. And to Phil's credit, he surged back, partly through injuries, but partly because, you know, his, his resilience was such that he made himself a live candidate for the final test and was picked. And he famously said about uh, the humiliation of such a... of being dragged off at such an early stage, he famously said, well, you know when you've had a crap match... When, you, when your mother and your wife send you a text saying they still love you. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: let's hope Danny's been sent those texts as well. <laughs> a bit of respite. Now, let's, um, let's lighten the mood a little bit uh, because obviously England did win, win a series and mm. the spearhead of that was Courtney Laws, man of the match on Saturday. And he obviously captained England and really led England in their two wins after going 1-0 down. Is he nailed on for World Cup captain now, do we think? And that's a question to the floor.
1: Yes, I think you. it's too late to change now. I think, you know, he's obviously come in and shown something. He's now the leader. He leads from the front. He plays on the edge. Very, very good player. And I think they, if they now said, actually, Courtney, that was quite good, but it's not good enough, then they would be doing themselves a disservice and create doubts in the in the minds of the players as to what they actually need to do to be in favor or to be the captain, so I think England would do a good thing as long as Eddie Jones survives. Would do a good thing and say let's stick with Courtney Laws now until the World Cup.
0: Yeah, three four seasons ago, he was a starter. You wouldn't have had him earmarked as a future England captain. Obviously, he's one of the more quiet characters. So, where's this come from? I think it's I think it's respect. I, I think he he's
2: he commands not automatically because he's done a hell of a lot to deserve it. I think and and I think his form in this sort of um, in this later stage of his career, this sort of autumnal form that he's in is a real credit to the guy. But I think he commands through his through his actions and through his status in the squad. I think he clearly demands great respect, much as Johnson did. Yeah. In the day, uh, he wasn't much of a talker. I mean, you, it word in Edgeways um, with Dawson and Delario barking um, um, morning, noon, and night. Um, but Martin never felt that he had to say very much. You know, to use the old cliche, when he did speak, people listened. I think Laws is absolutely in that category, and he's quite happy. If Owen Farrell wants to give himself laryngitis over the course of a, a course of eighty minutes, then absolutely fine. That's okay. I don't want laryngitis, Owen. Over to you. But if he needs to say something, then that's fine. Um, he will say it. But he just commands. He's, he commands respect. He has he has a, an air of command about him at the moment.
1: Perhaps the other c- candidate might have been Maro you by this time, uh, and yet. One moment captured on the screen where you know where he seemed almost demented, where he was screaming away at the opposition to try and put them off or something, and you you, you thought maybe he's he's too involved in the game, he's not as, not as, as as removed from it as he should be, he's just too overexcited, and and maybe that was the would have been a, a nail in his captaincy coffin.
0: But it is obviously good for a slightly quieter, um, you know, more level-headed or cool-headed yeah. captain to have those sorts of characters as well to back them up the yeah. tawny Owen Farrell, the loud and sort of play around the fringes, Maro it really does help, doesn't it? To have that, not a leadership circle, but certainly a bit of noise to back you up. You yeah. can always get really inventive and just let Ellis Genge do it. I think they will at one stage. How old is Genge now? 27 or eight? Sounds know. about
3: right, yeah.
0: He's 27, yeah, exactly. So he's got several years left and he's, he's obviously another one of England's player of the series. Speaking of player of the series... It's time for a little review of the summer. Now, we did this with the Six Nations and I am putting you gentlemen on the spot ever so slightly, so I apologise for that. But I would like your player of the summer, your moment of the summer and your surprise of the summer. Now, surprise is easiest. So I think we're all going to agree. Uh, Brendan, I'll give the floor to you for that.
3: Thanks. Well, um, Chile. I mean, what, what a fantastic result for rugby as well as them. It's a game where the Minnows rarely get on terms with the big boys. Uh, Chile have come from almost nowhere and they were trailing going to america they went 19 nil down in the match itself came back and won it with a 45 meter penalty with a couple of seconds to go phenomenal story and a little bit of a pointer for world rugby that's three south american teams in the world cup now could have had another spanish-speaking team in spain could yet have portugal so we always fixate on the islands and african nations and north america and actually, that could be rugby's really big growth area. So, well done, Chile! Fantastic result.
0: Any other surprises to throw in, or do we echo that? I, I was, I was, I was surprised at the
2: slightly one-way nature of um, the second test uh, uh, in Argentina, when Scotland pretty much ran. <laughs> it was a strange old series, one, one way or another there. And of course, it was a slightly, a slightly odd-looking Scotland side. I was surprised by that particular game and the way it unfolded. Uh, but absolutely nothing compared to, I mean, the, chi- the Chile results in the, if you can have a quiet seismic event, it is a quiet seismic event. And I, I, I think Bren's absolutely right. It is, it is a real eye-opener. And I would also say that World Rugby, while they will consider this to be a fantastic, news about, a fantastic news about the global spread, given their ambitions for rugby in the United States, I think there's a big chunk of World Rugby will be thinking, oh my God,
0: I think that's our surprise of the summer, and that is fairly unanimous. Let's go with player of the summer. Alistair, I'll come to you first. OK,
1: I'd, I'll nominate Jameson Gibson-Park, because he was at the centre of everything that Ireland did that was good. I think he was the epitome of what an all-action scrum half should be. But I think his reading of the game, his ability, and just his sheer... Vivacity and his enthusiasm—I thought—really galvanised that side and kept them on the front foot to achieve uh, an absolutely brilliant result, a series win in New Zealand.
2: I'm torn between two or three Irishmen. I must admit, I spoke earlier about uh, about how well I felt James Ryan played at the weekend and and his importance to the side and his growing stature on on the world stage. Um, I've also mentioned Josh Van der de Fleer, who I just think is is still underrated. I think he's a remarkably good player and proved it down there in, in a in a tough environment against tough direct opponents. However, I can't move a million miles beyond Tyburn. I think just across across the series, Crikey he made some big interventions, really big interventions, not just in his jackaling, but some of the line out steals, the tackling, and just That ridiculous capacity. The energy has a capacity for long range support work. So I go burn. Brendan?
3: I would have gone with Tad Byrne, but just to to ring the changes a little bit. um, He hasn't had a big enough mention yet. That's Robbie Henshaw, who is developed into like the complete centre, can play 12 or 13. It was his tackling that really caught my eye. There was one little sort of 45 second cameo in the first half on Saturday where he made three really big, important tackles. And they weren't the tackles where you get up and a bloke runs into you, get up again, another bloke runs into you. He was getting up, resetting, tackling, getting up, resetting, tackling. And it came at a moment where Ireland needed to be dominant. And he produced that. And he produced moments like that uh, throughout the series, really. So Robbie Henshaw, for me, I mean, you know, all three Irishmen, I think it says says it all, doesn't it, about how we rate their achievement down there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's only fitting that it's an Irish clean sweep, isn't it? And lastly, uh, moment of the summer we're not allowed to say, we've touched upon Chile already, so something that isn't Chile.
3: Can I dive in there on that one again? It's Still on an Irish theme. Uh, I think it was about 15 seconds left. They're 10 nil up. It's a scrum. So Ireland have won the match. There's no way back for New Zealand. The whole Ireland squad emptied the stands, came down onto the touchline and Peter O'Malley, a hard bastard of monster rugby, tough man, on the, on the touchline, sobbing his heart out, absolutely couldn't believe what had happened. Overcome with emotion, beating New Zealand in New Zealand, and of course he's had defeats down there. He had the Lions tour, which didn't go well for him. Captain the first test, then got dropped. A lot of emotional input into that win for Peter Armani. and uh, well, well deserved. And what a moment!
1: Yeah, I was going to go for I was going to go for the closing seconds of the Irish game as well. I mean, the, when they knew that they finally put the <laughs> the All Blacks to bed and the celebrations and their knowledge. And the, the sheer joy was brilliant, but it's also brilliant for, for world rugby because it's proven that the All Blacks can be beaten nearly as big as when England went down there and won in the cake tin with only 13 players on the field at side. You know, they went there and proved that they could beat New Zealand on their own soil. And that's how important that sort of result is. It means that you, you will develop the confidence to think you can take them on on any stage and, and that would be so good for Irish rugby. I
2: would, I would say, and those are, those are two very good points, twice in two weeks, the much criticised and hugely under pressure Sam Kane had to assess his team's defeats immediately after the Games and he did so with extraordinary generosity, complete honesty, hands up, they were better than us we weren't good enough to beat them, all that stuff that you hear so rarely now from from anyone, especially in those flash, flash interviews, which are tough to do. And he knew he was going to be asked hard questions. He could have gone fishing for some excuses. He didn't. He was completely upfront. We weren't good enough. And I think whatever happens to Kane and his captaincy, I, I admire him for his honesty there.
0: Yeah. And obviously a great emblem for what, rugby does that so many sports don't necessarily have to to quite the same degree isn't it great sorry for putting you guys on the spot there wasn't much forewarning there uh but thank you very much for doing that now let's actually wrap up now um yeah that was a fascinating episode that might be our longest ever but alistair it's been great having you here and chris and brendan hopefully see you next week Good week. good man Ruby Paper is available in stores on Sundays or through a digital subscription, get it delivered straight to you. We will see you next week for episode 24.